Wasn't that great? Yes, praise the Lord. Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, if you're using a pew Bible, page 1130. We've been looking at verses 1 through 14 of Romans chapter 6. This is our fifth week in dealing with this text. We've now arrived at the seventh and final truth that we must understand, believe, and apply so that we will break the grip of sin in our own lives. We've looked at six previous truths. This morning is the seventh. Seventh truth from this text, this section, occurs in verses, really verse 13. That truth is that we must replace sinful behavior. We must Replace sinful behavior. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The replacement of sinful behavior. Let me ask you a question. Yesterday was Saturday. Suppose uh, on Saturday, as you might be wont to do, you're out working in the yard. You begin early in the morning, 8 o'clock. You're out there working all day long, mowing the lawn, trimming the bushes, perhaps planting flowers, whatever it is. You're out there and you're just working and working away and uh, you... The course of the day, you manage to get yourself pretty hot, pretty sweaty, and pretty dirty. And you come in that in the afternoon, maybe around 3, 3.30, and you're going to go out to dinner. You're going to be heading out to dinner in another hour or so. Time is a little pressed. 
So instead of uh, taking a shower, you just put your clean clothes right on top of the clothes that you came in with, and off you go for your engagement, your dinner that night. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, nobody would do that sort of thing. Put clean clothes right on top of dirty clothes. Unless, of course, they're a 15-year-old boy. And uh, then they might do that. But even they know that if you put a clean shirt over a dirty, sweaty undershirt, it doesn't take long before the aroma begins to seep out, doesn't it? I mean, the only thing to do is to take off the dirty garments before you put on the clean garments. You don't put clean clothes over dirty clothes. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, is how to address ourselves in Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We have another imperative here in verse 13, actually two imperatives in verse 13. That is two commands, two exhortations, two things we're supposed to do. This follows right on the heels of two more that preceded us or preceded this in verses 11 and 12. And a couple of weeks ago, we spent a long time uh, talking about the difference between indicatives and imperatives. And we're not going to rehearse all that again. But here we are in the section of this text where there are certain things we're supposed to do if we want to be free from the grip of sin in our lives. And so in verse 11, we're to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is, we are to make a a mental break here. We're to, by faith, believe what God has said to be true about us. Verse 12, we're to we're to uh, no longer let sin sin reign in our mortal body. We should obey its lust. We're to make a definitive decision that says no more will you rule over me. And now here in verse 13, It's going to be unfolded for us in a very practical way, two more imperatives, how we might actually fulfill that commitment that sin will not rule or reign over me. How do we go about that? That's what Paul's going to talk about this morning. We are turning now really to the individual nitty gritty ways of breaking sin's grip. Paul tells us here that we have two obligations Two obligations, verse 13. One is to take off and another is to put on. Okay? Take off, put on. We are first to take off or to resist the reign of sin in our lives. Verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And secondly, we are to stop doing or we are to then replace that which we have stopped doing with its opposite attitude or behavior. You see that? We're to stop doing one thing. We're to start doing the very opposite. Put off the dirty clothes. Put on the clean clothes. Now, just like in these previous verses, we need to unpack this a little bit, both grammatically and lexically, so that we get a a better understanding of what it is that Paul's talking about here. The full significance of it all. This is exciting stuff. There's there's actually military language here in verse 13, and I love that. I just love military stuff. And uh, so military language really appeals to me. And it appeals to me, I think, because it uh, it brings home the seriousness of what it is we're talking about. We are engaged in a war. There is a very serious war going on. There is an intense battle that is going on really every moment in our lives. And so that is brought out here in the kind of language that Paul employs to talk about how it is to break the grip of sin. It kind of carries forward, by the way, from verse 12, where he talks about not letting sin reign. He's talking there about rulership or reigns. So he's talking about kings and those in authority. And that just carries into this military terminology here in verse 3. So let's just look at a couple of these terms. We'll take it apart, then put it back together. Paul says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. The word here translated present or in the verbal form presenting paristemi has the idea of to put at someone else's disposal. 
to put at someone else's disposal, to become uh, available or to offer yourself to someone else, to put yourself at someone else's disposal. And then he says, notice that we're not to to do that with the members of our body. Do you see that? The members of our body. This word is primarily translated limbs, you know, like arms and legs, that kind of limbs. Okay, but it but it can have a wider meaning, and I think it has a wider meaning here. By the way, it's used over in First Corinthians twelve, verse fourteen. In that section of First Corinthians twelve, Paul says there the body is not one member but many, and then he goes on to talk about eyes and ears and hands and feet and so forth. So it can have the wider uh, meaning of not just the arms and the legs, but the sort of all of the body parts. Okay, all of the body parts. In fact, I think it's appropriate enough here in verse 13 to widen it out just a bit more and talk about all of our natural capacities, all of our natural capacities, both those things that we can do physically and those things we do mentally. I think all of that is wrapped up in this idea of not putting your body at the disposal of sin. And finally, Paul says that we're not to do this as instruments of. Of unrighteousness. Do you see that word instruments? This is a really cool word. Hapla in the Greek, and it is a word that is used everywhere else in the New Testament to refer to weapons. The word means weapons. It's occasionally translated armor, but it's still the same basic idea of weaponry. Okay? In fact, in, uh, in classical Greek, a hoplite was the heavily armed Greek infantryman. So this word is a military word. This is a word about weaponry. So we're not to put at the disposal our natural capacities as a weapon, Paul says, of unrighteousness. Now that begins to make it a little more specific for us. But beyond that, grammatically, we just need to make a couple of observations. He says, do not go on presenting. You see that? We have a present imperative here, and it's, it's the idea of constant action. Constant action. So constantly, we're not to allow this to happen. We're not to do this. We are to regularly oppose putting our bodies or our natural capacities, letting them become weapons of unrighteousness. But we are to present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and our members as weapons of righteousness to God. There we have an aorist imperative verb, which just means that it's a once and for all final decisive act. So stop doing this all the time. Don't do this anymore, but begin now and forevermore to put yourself at the disposal of righteousness. This is a major break he's talking about here. We are alive with Jesus Christ. Is that right? Is now what Paul has been arguing here in the earlier part of chapter six? We are alive with Jesus Christ. And because we are alive with Jesus Christ, Paul is saying that you are to put yourself at the disposal of God. Put yourself at the disposal of God. Devote your minds and your body to the service of your new king. Stop enlisting in the army of the enemy and put yourself into the action of the army of the king. You know, it's really disheartening when a Christian allows his natural capacity, his body to become a weapon of unrighteousness, a weapon that is often used on the very body of Christ. When he sins, when you sin, when she sins, it is not just between you and God. Your sin affects all of us. The mud from your sin splashes all over the place and gets on many, many people. So that you, when you are sinning, when you are living contrary to who you really are in Jesus Christ, you have become a weapon in the hand of the enemy and you are slashing and jabbing and stabbing and it is all over the place. People are getting hurt. You know, when we allow ourselves to be controlled by sin, we become like David. Like the King David. Do you remember him? Old David, he found himself, he was on the run from Saul for 10 years. You remember that? Saul was constantly chasing him. And and it got so bad that David ended up, 1 Samuel 29 tells us, that David ended up in the amazing predicament where he is now riding into battle against the armies of Israel in league with the Philistines. 
He is now riding with the Philistines into battle against Israel. That's how bad it had become for David. And so, beloved, the same thing can happen to us. When we allow our natural capacities to continue to be enlisted in sin, then we become like David riding into battle against the people of God. We're at war. We are absolutely at war. And a war in which there is no neutrality, there is no truce, there is no possible negotiated peace. It is a fight to the death. And we are either a weapon in the hand of sin, or we are a weapon in the hand of God. Now, this process of putting off and putting on, I call it a replacement theology, by the way, for you theology buffs, this is true replacement theology, okay? But that is illustrated, I think, most clearly for us in Ephesians chapter 4. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and leave Romans for just a little bit and turn you over there, page 1172, Ephesians chapter 4. And I just, I want to illustrate from Ephesians 4 this, what Paul's talking about here in Romans 13, okay, of no longer enlisting yourself as a, a weapon in the hands of sin, but now as a weapon in the hand of God. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. And this, by the way, is nothing but a series of illustrations that Paul gives. So I'm going to just take his illustration and I'm going to re-illustrate with it. Notice in verse 25, and by the way, contextually, you can see this, verse 22. He says that you lay aside the old man. You remember that kind of terminology from earlier in Romans 6? Okay, and that you put on the new man, verse 24. So we're right in the same context talking about exactly the same things. Now, Paul will illustrate it for us. Beginning in verse 25, he says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul says we are to put off lying, the dirty clothes, the dirty laundry that has to go. The weapon that has to be laid down in the conflict is lying, he says, and we are to put on truth. We are to put on truth. We're to put on the clean clothes of truth. Why? Because we're members of one another. We are members of a body together, Paul says. So verse 25, put off lying, put on truth. Verses 26, 27, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What are the dirty clothes that comes off here? It's sinful anger. What is the weapon that has to be laid down? It's sinful anger. You are to put off the sinful anger and you are to put on reconciliation. You are to put on reconciliation. That's the clean clothes. That's the true and righteous weapon in the hand of God. Why? So the devil doesn't tear up the church. That's his answer. We do this so the devil doesn't tear up the people of God. Third, verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, Performing with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. What are we to put off? Stealing. Put off stealing. Put away stealing. And instead put on hard work. Okay? Stop stealing. Put on hard work. Why? So that you have something to give to other people. So that you can become generous because your God is generous. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. What are we to put off? Hurtful speech. Hurtful speech is no longer to be named among us. That is a weapon of unrighteousness. That weapon has to be put down and picked up in its place is encouraging speech. Encouraging words are to come out of our mouths. Why? Because it's a source of grace to other people. It's a source of grace to others in the body of Christ. Finally, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What is the weapon to be put down? It is the violent fits of temper and slander that characterize the unregenerate man, the old man. Put those things away, he says. And instead, put on kindness and forgiveness. Put on kindness and forgiveness. Why? Look at the text. Why? Because God has forgiven you. Because God has forgiven you. And if God has forgiven you such a mound of debt that you could never possibly repay, repay right? 10,000 talents. 
How could you not forgive someone who owes you a couple of denarii, right? That's what Jesus said. So these are illustrations here in Ephesians 4 of just exactly what it is Paul's talking about when he says lay down the old weapons of sin, the old weapons of unrighteousness, and pick up once and for all, decisively, with a constant, ongoing action, the weapons of righteousness. Back to Romans 6, verse 13. Paul gives us the theological reason here why we're to do this. In verse 14, the reason is given to us here in verse 14. It kind of is the capstone of this whole section. Why? Answer, for sin shall not be master over you. For sin shall not be master over you. Paul, it's, it's, uh, it's like bookends here in this whole section. Notice verse 2. Let me just kind of describe it to you that way. Verse 2, he says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's one bookend. And the final bookend of this whole section is at the end of, or is it verse 14? For sin shall not be master over you. Those are your two truths that balance this whole section and tell you how it is you are able to do that which you have been commanded to do. How can I do it? Paul says it's, it's simple. The reason, the ability that you have to do this is the fact, his promise to you, that sin shall not be master over you. You have a new master. The old master was sin. The old rule was sin. The old reign was sin. The old man was in Adam. Now you are the new man in Jesus Christ. The new master, the new ruler is who? Talk to me. Who? It is God. It is God in Christ. Okay? So the old slaveholder, slave owner, his, his rule over you has been broken. You are now enslaved to a new ruler, Christ. It doesn't have power over you anymore, he says. It does not have supreme, unopposed power over you now or at any time in the future. Future tense verb there, verse 14. Okay, not now and not at any time in the future. Will it have uninhibited power over you. Notice how uh, in this whole section, sin is personified. It's personified. It's, it's, uh, it's given characteristics like a person. It's made like a ruler. Okay? So that we can understand the tension of what's going on here. Basically, a change in rulership, a change in lordship has happened, Paul says. And we are under a new lord. We're under a new lord. Look at the end of verse 14. You're not under... Law, but under grace. Just another way of talking about the same thing. There has been a change of rulership in your life. Under law is just a way of describing the old realm. The old man in Adam. You are now not under the law. You are not under the old man in Adam. You are not under the old uh, regime or reign in which sin controls. You are now under the new ruler, the new reign, the new master called grace. Call grace. Paul says the reason this can all come true, the reason he can make these commands, these exhortations upon us is because you have been transposed into a new regime, into a new realm, into a new kingdom, into a new rule, the rule of grace. You now live in the realm of grace. Beloved, that is an incredible thought. That is an absolutely incredible thought. The old has been done away with. You are now in the new. You are in the realm of grace. Let's just review for a minute the old realm, which I think will help clarify the, uh, the significance of this new. Think with me on this old realm of the law. Paul talks back in uh, verse 20, chapter 5, about the law. You remember that? He says the law came in that transgression might increase. Paul tells us uh, throughout this epistle and others that the law has a sin-producing, sin-intensifying function. It draws out sin. It strengthens sin. It intensifies sin. It increases the severity of it. Chapter 5, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, Paul says there that the law is the power of sin. That somehow law and sin are connected together and we'll begin to get into that next week. 
Okay, but for now, what Paul is saying is that the law merely intensifies the rule and reign of sin in your life. For those living under the law, there's no ability to be free from sin. There's no way to break its grip on their hearts. If they, as long as you live in the realm and reign of law, sin will rule over you. The only way to break its grip is to be transposed into the new kingdom of grace. To live in the new reign and rule of grace. This, by the way, has huge implications for us as believers. Huge implications. There are so many in the church that make an error here. They, they think that the way to, to uh, restrict sin in the life of the believer is to put them back under the law. Just give them law. Tell them, do this, don't do this. And that will wa- help them to walk in holiness, beloved. It doesn't help you walk in holiness at all. All it does is intensify sin in your life. The way to be free, the way to break its grip is to live and operate and work in the realm of grace. The only way to break the grip of sin in your life is to do it God's way. That is the only way. And you have to do it God's way. And the way has been laid out for us here in these verses, 1 through 14. Now, someone may think to themselves, well, if I'm living in the reign of grace, I'm no longer any law, then I can sin how, as much as I want and how, you know, whenever I want, right? How would Paul answer that question? Look at verse 15. May get a Tom, may it never be. No, 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 no. Perish the thought. Are you crazy? That's his answer, by the way, and we'll deal with that a little more next week. Okay? So listen to me carefully. I'm not advocating a license to sin. What we're talking about is a transposition into a new realm in which grace is your ruler, and it is through the power of grace operating in your life that you will break sin's grip. And it is the only way you will break it. You were saved by what? Grace. You will be sanctified by what? Grace. It is grace from beginning to end, always and only the grace of God. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, by the way. Paul says, Therefore the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Grace has a disciplinary function in our lives. Okay, It's not just a do-whatever-you-want kind of thing. That's not true biblical grace. So we end this section with a bookend that says you're not under the authority, the mastery of sin anymore. You are now in the new realm of grace. But it's way too early for me to quit. So what I want to do is I want to draw out some sort of um, practical observations regarding this whole idea of replacing sinful behaviors. Okay? So what I want to do is try to make it as practical as I can. I'm going to take it down to some very specific instances of how we go about laying aside the the weapons of unrighteousness and and taking up the weapons of righteousness. You with me? All right, I've laid them out for you in your notes there. The first is what I'm calling deceptive substitutes for replacement. Deceptive substitutes for replacement. And and I was uh, really uh, um, impacted in preparation for this whole by uh, by reading uh, John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. OK, so uh, many of these ideas originated with uh, Owen and I've kind of taken them and fleshed them out a little bit for us. OK, good book, by the way, I recommend it to you. John Owen's Mortification of Sin. All right. Be reminded of something as we begin this section here. Hebrews 3.13. Hebrews 3.13, he says, being but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened By the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very, very deceitful. It lies to you. Okay? It lies to you. And so you need to think rightly, which means you need to think the way God thinks. You need to bring your mind into subjection and submission to the Word of God. All right, so let's talk about some of these obstacles. The first, deceptive substitutes for replacement. The first one, it's there in your handout. I call it diversion. The first deceptive substitute is diversion. What do I mean by that? Well, many times a 
a person uh, will not replace ungodliness, but will merely divert it so that it no longer seems to be a problem. They don't replace it. They merely divert it. Okay. And then it doesn't seem to be a problem anymore. It's but it's like a river that's been diverted. Okay. Eventually, it will overflow whatever obstacle has been laid down. I know years ago I used to do a lot of backpacking, and, and there was this one area that we really liked to go to, but there was a lot of beavers that were active in that area. And so uh, one year we went there, and, and uh, the, the uh, stream used to run this way, but the beavers had got in there, and they had dammed it all up, and now the stream was going a different way, and we were all messed up and too dumb to bring a compass. And so, and so the stream wasn't where it was supposed to be. It had been diverted. Okay, and that's what a lot of us do is we don't really we don't put off the dirty clothes. Okay, we sort of divert the behavior or the thought process. And eventually what happens when you only divert is it cuts a new channel. Okay, it cuts a new channel and it continues to surge on just like a river to the ocean. All right, let me show you some examples of what I'm talking about. Man, let me talk to you first. Okay, let me talk to you first. Men, as we grow older, okay, and I guess I can say that now, I'll be 51 this month. As we grow older, okay, our youthful lusts may fade as our vigor fades, okay? As our physical vigor fades, the youthful, youthful lusts will fade with them, okay? But that does not mean that we have put them off and replaced them with godliness, all that means is that we're growing older and we're slowing down and, the, and we can't get uh, excited about all the things that we used to get excited about, or at least as often as we used to get excited, okay? But that desire, that innate desire within us for control or comfort or some toxic brew of both of them that originally drove those youthful lusts is still there. It's not been put off. It's still there. And it just, it's just going to manifest itself in a different way. So it may manifest itself in the form of self-absorption, gentlemen. That is that all you can think about is your own pleasures. Okay? You, so now arrange your life. And I'm going to really get out on the limb here. I stomped on toes last week. I'm having such a good time. I'm going to do it again. We so arrange our retirement years that they are spent in our own comfort, the pursuit of our own comfort. Okay, so what we've done is we've substituted youthful lusts for old age lusts. Okay, that is our comfort, our self-absorption. That's an example of diversion, a diversion example. Let me give you another one. Maybe you're a person who before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you were stuck in a very worldly lifestyle. Okay, the, the sin of this world had really gripped your soul. And so there were many, many manifestations of worldliness in your life before you come to Christ. So you come to Jesus Christ. Okay, and those lusts and those passions are still there. But instead of deal with them, instead of put them off and replace them with godliness, instead you divert them. And what happens many times is people divert them into legalism. They divert them over into legalism. So they substitute worldliness for legalism. That is not a growth in godliness, okay? The substitution of one sin for another is not a growth in godliness. It is merely a different manifestation of your own wickedness. And so if that's the case in your life, if you have found yourself that you used to be in a worldly lifestyle and now you're not, examine your own heart and find out whether you really put off worldliness or you merely diverted it and substituted for it a different manifestation of sin. So diversion is one way. That we have a deceptive substitute. Let me give you another. Another is called temporal victories. We have temporal victories. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes as a believer, when sin erupts in a particularly violent way in our life, it scares us. It's, it frightens us. It, it kind of pops out and it is so ugly. It is so dark. It is so wicked. It scares us. And we're afraid and we're particularly afraid of the potential consequences of what just happened, what we've just done. And so it fills us with a temporary hatred of our sin, but only a temporary hatred. And what happens is sin becomes like an enemy that plays dead on the battlefield. OK, we're we're so we're so um, 
afraid of the consequences of it. We're so repulsed by what just happened, but we don't deal with it. We don't really put it off. We don't, we don't replace it with godliness. Instead, we just sort of reject it at that moment in time. And it's like a, it's like a warrior lying on a battlefield playing to be dead. And the advancing army kind of progresses on and then he pops up and stabs somebody in the back. Okay. And that's what sin does. That's what sin does. It, it lays, it looks like it's dead. After this particularly violent eruption, it looks like it's now dead because you've been so repulsed by it. But you haven't really put it off. You haven't really replaced it with godliness. And so it leaps back up at the most inopportune times and it sticks you in the back. Okay. Second Corinthians, chapter seven, verse 10. Paul talks about this idea. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Those that are that have only temporal victories, they are involved often in the sorrows, only the sorrows of the world. They're they're sorry about what happened and they're sorry about the consequences of what happened, but they have not yet willingly and come full force to deal with what it is, to put it off and to replace it with something that honors God. Specific example. You ready? I'll give you a specific example. I'm going to talk about pornography again. Okay. I'm going to talk about pornography again. The reason I'm going to talk about it again is because it's so prevalent. It is so prevalent. Often the scenario works like this, gentlemen. It breaks out in your life. You become involved in it. And you become sick to your stomach. You get, you get physically sick to your stomach. And there's a, a sense that you are you're absolutely afraid. And it's frequently that you're not afraid of the wrath of God. What you're afraid of is being discovered. You're afraid of being discovered. That somebody will find out what just happened. And so that produces a sickness within your stomach. I mean, your stomach gets upset about this whole thing. Often you cry. You cry. And you promise God that you'll never do it again. You promise him, you're crying, you're pleading with him. You say, oh God, I'll never do this again. Please, you beg him to take it away from you. And then you refrain for a period of time, don't you? There's a period of time where you're not involved anymore. But see, the enemy's only laying on the battlefield pretending to be dead. He's only pretending to be dead. And the reason this is, is because you haven't really dealt with the underlying issue. The underlying issue, gentlemen, is your dissatisfaction with your God. You are not enraptured with your God and what he has provided for you. And because of your dissatisfaction with him, you are now looking for your satisfaction somewhere else. And so, yeah, you'll go through all the manifestations, the sickness in your stomach, the tears, the pleadings, the promises. It'll happen. But you won't slay him. You won't put him down. And so what happens is after a period of time, like a dog returns to his vomit, you find yourself, you're back at it again. You're right back in the same place. But let me give you a warning here. You're actually not back in the same place. What you've done is you've taken one step further down the ladder to the destruction of your own soul. Each time you return you step deeper into darkness. This is nothing to fool around with. Can a man take hot coals into his own bosom and not be burned? Okay, this is serious stuff. Do not saddle, settle for temporal victories. Do not settle for a temporal victory. Instead, wage the war at the level the war needs to be waged. At the level of your affections. Who it is that has really gripped your heart. These are some of the deceptive substitutes. Let me go on and talk about other hindrances. I'm calling these obstacles to replacement. Obstacles to replacement. There are several of them for you. The first obstacle that I want to talk about is what I'm calling a deep-seated resistance. A deep-seated resistance. When we, when we attempt to seriously engage here 
and to put off and to put on. When we finally begin to deal with the real root issues of the heart, the levels of our affections, we should expect to encounter stiff resistance. Okay? Very, very stiff resistance. Now, we may have a few simple early victories. That's possible. But don't ever conclude from the simple and, and uh, early victories that this whole process, okay, is easy. It's not. It's not easy at all. It's like a fish. It's like when you catch a fish. You know, you get it on the end of the pole and you're reeling it into your boat. And for some fish, you know, they'll kind of allow themselves to be reeled in until they get the side of the boat. And then they run, right? They hit the line and they run and they pull it back out again, okay? Sin can be just like that. You can appear to be reeling it in. You can appear to be having success here over this. But then all of a sudden, it's a deep-seated resistance and it bolts on you. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about the sin of gluttony. Okay? Let's talk about the sin of gluttony. That's a, a nice one because that fits many of us. Okay? The sin of gluttony. What is gluttony? Gluttony is idolatry, okay? So it is wicked. It is idolatry. It is substituting food for God. It is finding our satisfaction in what goes over our teeth and down our throat instead of in our God. So when you're happy, you eat. When you're unhappy, you eat. When life is stressful, you eat, okay? Everything is about consuming food because now food has become your God, your ultimate source of satisfaction. Now, when you come under conviction in this area of that this needs to be rooted out of your life, you'll perhaps begin a, a, a regimen of maybe fasting and portion control. And so you begin that process and, and you have some early success. Right? Well, this is not too bad. I lost six pounds. Right? Which is, by the way, all the wrong reasons to do this. But in any case... You start down that track, you lose five or six pounds, and this doesn't look all that difficult. But see, you haven't really dealt with it yet at the level of your affections. And so what will happen is that that deep-seated resistance will begin to take traction in your life. And one of the ways that it, it might uh, break, it, break out is that all of a sudden you're, you're becoming more and more irritable, more and more short-tempered with people. And you say, well, it's just because I'm hungry. See? And if I were not hungry, then I wouldn't be irritable. I wouldn't be so short-tempered. Really? Okay? Why don't you explain that to God? Okay? I'm sure he would be satisfied with that excuse. Okay? The reason you're irritable, the reason you're short-tempered, has nothing to do with the amount of food that has gone into your mouth that day. The reason you're irritable, the reason you're short-tempered, is because at your base level, you are in love with yourself, okay? And you're not getting what you want, and so you manifested an irritability and bad-tempered. That's the level of the affections that has to be dealt with. But what happens for many is they become discouraged, they become overwhelmed, and they give up. They give up. Because there's a deep-seated resistance to change. Another obstacle for you. By the way, I, you know, I'm not looking to depress everybody here. Okay? But, to, you know, to, be, um, to know these things is to be forewarned. Okay? And to be forewarned is to, is to be forewarned. Okay? I don't know. There's probably something that goes on the end of that, right? <laughs> if we know the enemy... We have a chance of beating them. Here's another one. Ignoring the root cause of sin. Ignoring the root cause of your sin. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose, um, suppose you grew up in a situation where you were constantly criticized or taken advantage of as a child. Say your upbringing was one where you're never good enough. Whatever you did was never good enough for your parents. Okay? You were constantly being criticized or perhaps taken advantage of in some way. All right? Now, here you are later in life and you have developed a lust for control. A lust for control. Because you have said to yourself, either overtly or not overtly, that you will never, ever again allow yourself to be subject to those kinds of feelings of helplessness. Never again. And so now... 
you have this lust for control that perhaps displays itself in a perfectionist uh, orientation towards life. You're a perfectionist. Okay? You're a perfectionist. And what that means is that you, you want to manage every single detail of your life so that you will never again be on the recipient of those horrible feelings of being criticized or taken advantage of. You see that? So what has happened now is that you are in an attempt, you have supplanted God. God is no longer sovereign. You are sovereign. You're going to manage the universe. You're going to manage your life. And you're going to make sure that you're never, ever hurt again. But guess what? You're not God. And you can't manage the details. And so when you fail to manage the details, anger begins to well up in you. Okay? That's the process of how it works. Now here's what you should do. You need to deal with the root cause of it all. You need to deal with the root cause. Okay? And that begins by thanking God. By thanking God for your upbringing. Saying, oh God, I bless you for the home in which I was raised. With parents that were never satisfied with what I did or with whatever horrible thing happened in me or to me by some adult. I praise your name that I was brought up in this circumstance because it is by those circumstances that you have brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. You see that? It is through those circumstances, Lord, that you brought me to faith in Christ. I would not be a believer if I had not gone through what I have gone through. And so ugly, yes. Sinful, yes. God causes all things to work together for what? Good. This is an illustration of working together for good. You come to faith in Jesus Christ through the circumstances of your life. Painful, ugly as they are. And so you can thank your sovereign God for your hurtful home life because he used it to draw you to himself in salvation. But it doesn't end there because you can continue to thank him because these remaining hurtful residual feelings God is going to use to sanctify you as you learn to put them off and to put on Jesus Christ. So all of it, from salvation to sanctification, all of the ugliness is, is superseded, it is overwhelmed, it is used by a sovereign God to save you, draw you to Himself, and conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And in that, you can thank Him. And in that, you can thank Him. And you can begin to deal with the root cause of your sin. Third obstacle. False Physicians, false physicians. Another obstacle to replacement is listening to the advice of false physicians, quacks, okay, witch doctors, if you like. We have an illustration of this, Second Kings 1, 2 through 4. Ahaziah, the king of Israel, he was ill. Rather than sending to Elijah, he sent instead to the prophets of Baal. Okay, rather than go to the men of God, he went to the prophets of Baal. By the way, Elijah said that that decision would cost him his life. How does that work out today? It works out like this. Rather than go to the godly men of the church to help you deal with an issue, people will go anywhere but. They will go and ransack the Christian bookstores for the latest self-help book filled with pop psychology. Or they will turn on their television set to a spiritual guru like Oprah Winfrey. And she will give them their advice on how to live the spiritual life. By the way, that lady is exceedingly dangerous. Exceedingly dangerous. She claims to be a Christian. She says she's a former Baptist. I guess that's true. She probably was a former member of a Baptist church. Okay, I would tell you, I don't believe she's ever known Christ in a saving way. She has now, by the way, thrown in with this New Age Gnostic teacher by the name of Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle. And they've just completed a 10-week web broadcast that reached millions and millions of people in which Tolle, and she just sort of sits there and nods and agrees, spews out his Gnostic heresy. 
He has written a book which is destined to become a bestseller, by the way. It's called A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. Okay, you're probably going to hear about this if you haven't heard already. According to Tolley, and by the way, this book has some Bible verses sprinkled into it. Okay, Christians love that kind of stuff. Aren't you Bible verses? Oh, it must be of God. All right. By the way, the devil uses the Bible very effectively. Okay, just remember that. According to Tolley, man's basic problem is that we are ignorant of our true self. And that leads to a false consciousness that causes us distress. Okay? And the answer, he says, is to understand that much of what we call reality is merely an illusion. Okay? That is, that is New Age Gnostic uh, Hinduism all rolled up in one big ball. Okay? And he says we can become, uh, we, reach, we reach a higher state of consciousness by overcoming the illusions that we call reality. And of course, if you want to do that, then you have to follow his teachings. Okay? This guy is right out of the pit. Okay? And he is going to seduce those that are attached to the church of Jesus Christ with this kind of stuff. Okay? So false physicians. There's another one here called myopia. Myopia. Myopia means nearsightedness. Distant objects appear blurred for someone who has myopia, at least according to the dictionary that I looked up. So, what do I, why am I calling it myopia? I'm calling it spiritual myopia. That's losing sight of the extent of the battle. That is, that you're so focused on one thing up close that you lose sight of everything else that's happening, okay? You put all your soldiers in one battle and you ignore all the other fronts. Kind of like playing computer risk, which was something that I was doing a lot until I realized that it was having control over me. And so I repented and pressed delete and it's gone from my computer. OK, and that's how I repented of playing risk and losing an hour and a half a day playing this crazy risk. But anyway, playing this game, you get really focused on building up your army in one part of the world, right? Where you're going, to, you're going to have this campaign to take it over. But what you fail to see is that the computer is building up armies in all these other parts of the world. And so while you go in this way, he's coming this way and can sweep you right off the board. Okay, stupid game anyway. So that can happen in the spiritual world. You can be so focused on dealing with one area of sin that you're not scanning the horizon to see where the risks are coming from. Because it can come at you from a different direction. So you have to be vigilant. You have to be on the alert. You need to be constantly involved in the disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and worship. Okay? So myopia. All right, now the good news. You ready? We may not sing, Ron, but that's okay. We sang a lot already, didn't we? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to go back to this for one more. Okay, I want to move on. Let me give you three helpful strategies. Okay, you ready? These are three helpful strategies for effective replacement. Number one, be a realist. Be a realist. Understand human nature as God understands it. That is, as it actually is. Not as you would like it to be, but for what it really is. Be hard-nosed about the strength and the depth of sin and its ability to deceive us. Okay? Don't underestimate your enemy. You know, when somebody says or does something that offends you, you shouldn't be surprised that that happened. What you should be surprised of is that it wasn't worse. Okay? That's what should really surprise you, is that it didn't do something worse. They didn't say something worse. Don't underestimate the power of sin. Don't underestimate the wickedness of it, the depth of it. Okay? So be a realist. Conversely, don't pretend that you cannot be trapped by the same kind of sin or haven't been in the past. Okay? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Okay? How's this play out? Don't sit in judgment of your brother. Don't sit there in your pious self-righteousness and point a finger at them and say, look at how wicked they are. Okay? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and get a good appraisal of who you are. Be a realist. That leads me to my second. Know your enemy. 
Know your enemy and the enemy is you. Okay? Know your enemy and you are it. Be a student of your own nature. What are the ways? What are the wiles? What are the methods? What are the advantages? What are the occasions whereby sin defeats you? Make a list. Write it down. Know yourself. Know where you are weak and when do you fall? What were you doing when it happened? What were you thinking when it happened? Start to make a record of these things and get to know yourself. You know, you can't fight against sin unless you are knowledgeable of your enemy. You need to know his strengths. You need to know his strategies. What are the specific pleas? What are the specific reasonings? What are the specific excuses that sin uses to trap you? Not your husband, not your wife, not your children, not your friends, not your parents. You. How does sin trap you? That's what you need to be able to answer. Maybe it's something like this. I've worked hard. I deserve, you know, fill it in. Okay. Maybe that's your trap. Or I've been abused. I've been abandoned. I've been controlled. I've been humiliated. That will never happen to me again. Maybe that's the way that it happens. Maybe it's something like this. You say in your heart, if I only had, then I will be well thought of. If I only had a new vehicle, then I would be well thought of. If I only had some new clothes, if I only had a new house, if I only had that new video game, then I'd be well thought of. If I only had a new hairstyle, people would definitely think more of me. How does it come to you? What are the devices? What are the strategies that sin approaches you? Not me. You. Because how it approaches you may not necessarily be the way it approaches me. Know yourself. And third, give sin no quarter. Okay? We're not talking about, you know, two bits. Okay? We're still in a military motif here, okay? Give it no quarter. That means continually strike at its root. Engage it in battle constantly. Constantly. Be at war. No truce with a mortal enemy. No possibility of a de-escalation. Sin wants to kill you. And it will kill you. Unless you're killing it. World War II, after the landing at Normandy, there was a need for the breakout across France and into Germany. And so they enlisted the flamboyant General George Patton to lead the Third Army in their breakout in the Southern Front. And Patton said to he got his, his, uh, his officers together and he kind of gave them a pep talk okay, before they were to launch out here. And what he said to them was something like this. He said, I don't want to hear any reports that you're holding your position. The only holding we're going to do is we're going to hold the enemy by the nose and we're going to kick him in the rear. Okay. Now he said it more colorfully than that. All right. But that's the point. There's no holding your ground against sin. You're going to grab it by the nose. And you're going to kick it in the rear. Okay. And you're going to continue to kick it because if you don't, it's going to kick you. So give it no quarter. Battle against the sin of pride by cultivating humility. Battle against your passions by practicing patience. Battle against your impure thoughts by godly meditation. Battle against your anxiety by prayer. Battle against the love of the world by becoming more heavenly minded. Continue to wage war. If we're going to make progress, then we need to fight. Then we need to fight. You want to be free from sin and its grip on your life? I'm not talking about perfectionism. Okay? I'm talking about it when it's got you by the throat and it's squeezing the life out of you. You want to break that grip? Then you give yourself to what Paul has laid out for us here. You live responsibly before God. 
You make the faith decision that sin will no longer be your master because it's not. You say, sin, you will no longer rule and reign in my life. Thou shalt not pass. And you begin to put off the old man and to put on the new. And it's a lifelong progress or process, beloved. It's a lifelong process and it doesn't get any easier at 80 years old than at 8 years old. Okay? It doesn't get any easier. But praise be to God for those who are in Christ Jesus. This life is but the vapor that temporarily rises above a cup of coffee. Okay? It's like the grass of the field. It withers and it's gone. But you have an eternal life with Christ. Okay? And you long for His return when sin will finally and totally be gone forever. Be heavenly minded. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Savior, I invite you to not leave this place today without coming to terms with your Creator. We're talking about being free from sin's grip, but that is only available for those who have by faith embraced the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross. If you have yet to do that, if you have perhaps knowledge in your head, but never in your heart have you embraced Christ, if you called out to Him, if you said, be merciful to me, the sinner. I believe you died for me. If you've never done that, then I invite you after the service, you come over here to this lighted cross. There'll be people there to talk with you, to open the Word of God with you, to show you how you might have life and life everlasting. Okay? Do not leave. Do not walk out. Do not harden your hearts. Let me pray. Father, thank You for our time together this morning in the Word. Lord, we we long to live holy lives. That is our desire. That is our aspiration. And You have told us here in Your Word that that is Your will for us. And that You have provided for us the spiritual resources that it would be possible. Well, Father, help us to apprehend the truth. Strengthen our faith that we could cling to it and believe it wholeheartedly. Strengthen our resolve that we would be willing to begin to live like who we really are. Help us to wage the war at the level of our, our affections. To be laying down the weapons of unrighteousness and to pick up the weapon of righteousness that is holiness in our thought, word, and deed. And to begin to live as soldiers in the army of God. Transform your people. Do something amazing, our Father, that the world would look on, would see it, and would be amazed. Use us for your name's sake. Amen. We've probably got time for one verse, huh? Let's just do one verse, that way I can get to the back door. God bless.